we're going to get started here. Well, first off, I, I do want to say a special thanks to Pastor Bob and to Pastor Bill for giving me the opportunity to come and preach. It is a great privilege, and I do look forward to it. It seemed like they asked me to preach every year the, the last week of August. I guess I get the, the, the time when all the pastors want a day off, and uh, so we'll give it to Mike. But I'm just telling you, I, I do appreciate the opportunity to come. And tonight, we're going to be uh, giving uh, our 83rd sermon on Inside the Book of Luke. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 31 to 36. And uh, why don't you follow along with me? It's okay if you've got your iPad or phone. I know you're not texting grandma, so go ahead and get your Bible out there. That's just fine. But uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 31 to uh, 34. And let's just uh, kind of go over the text that we're going to be covering tonight. Then Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, We're going up to Jerusalem And everything that is written about the prophets and about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. You know, one of the things that uh, I am accused of from time to time is being a very focused individual. I'm the oldest of five. Yeah, you laugh, Graham. My mother-in-law laughs at me. She's giggling. She's already snorting up here. So, um, um, you know, I'm the oldest of five boys and a girl, and so noise to me is actually soothing. Um, and I can think my own thoughts in my own bubble very, very easily. And, and my wife often knows that if she, there's something important to tell me, uh, she'll look at me like just say, look at me, look at me. I, you know, so I realize there's something important here. I get out of my bubble and I listen to Leanne. You know, uh, one of the stories that I love uh, to hear uh, was told by Dr. Dobson a, a number of years ago. And he told the story about a little five-year-old little girl who was uh, called Big Sister, and she loved her little brother. Little brother was six months old, couldn't crawl yet, but she loved little brother. You know, she was mama to little brother. And she, wherever, wherever she was, little brother was, in the front room, the back room, the living room, the kitchen, wherever Big Sister was, little brother went, and she made sure that he got there by carrying him. Well, little brother started getting a little bit bigger, and mamas thought, you know what, I, I'm kind of a little bit uncomfortable with um, you carrying your, your, your little brother around all the house. So I'll tell you what we need to do, honey. I want you to tell me where you want to go. I'll take him to let mama carry the baby, okay? Let mama carry the baby, and, and kind of thing. And she said, okay, okay, mama, that's just fine. Well, um, so mama went back out into the kitchen to make lunch. And uh, about a half hour later, she noticed that uh, big sister little brother had moved from the front of the house to the back of the house. And mama hadn't carried the baby. So she went back over to little sister, and she kind of sat down and had a little talk with, with big sister. And she says, honey, I thought I told you that you weren't supposed to carry your big brother. And uh, she says, mama, I didn't. I didn't carry him. And she says, well, honey, how did your little brother get from the front of the house to the back of the house if you, if you didn't carry him? And she says, oh, mama, that's easy. I rolled him. <laughs> you know? I thought, oh, boy, that's a person that's focused, okay? You know, can't carry him. She, she obeyed. He was a little dizzy, but you know what? He was playing just fine, you know? Boys can take a licking and keep ticking. I love people that are focused, you know, in their, in their uh, attention, and, uh, you know, it's like, don't tell me how it can't get done. 
I'm focused. Jesus is very focused here in Luke chapter 18. There's a lot of different things that have been going on. Three and a half years of ministry are about to land. And he knows why he's been here. So let's set the scene for where we are in Luke chapter 18. See, if you take a look here, we are about one week away from the triumphal entry. Now, the triumphal entry is when Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's going to be literally hailed as a conquering hero, only to be five days later on a cross and three days later be rising from the dead. Not too bad for one week of ministry, but it's going to be a wild week. We're about two two weeks away from the resurrection. I went through the book of Luke, and I counted how many miracles there were inside the book. There are 18, 16 down, two to go. I also counted out how many parables there are, stories that teach a con- a content. And there are 24 parables, 22 down, two to go. I mean, you can literally feel the plane landing on this. I know that uh, Nikki is going to be a stewardess here, one of your daughters, right? She's in, in stewardess school. I was thinking about her as I was doing this, and I was just thinking, you know, you can tell when the plane is no longer uh, flying at 31,000 feet. You can start to feel it start to move down, especially when the stewardesses come by and say, would you please put your seats up, your trays up, turn off your phones. We're coming through one last time. We're getting ready for landing. That's Luke 18. You can feel the plane begin to come down um, uh, for, for a landing on this. And... Um, Really quickly, Jesus is going to talk to us really about what his ministry is about because it's not about the miracles. It's not about the parables. It's all about the cross. And the cross is going to be brutal. So here's, before I set the scene, I'm going to tell you this right up front. When you preach expositorily through a book, sometimes as a preacher you get the opportunity to preach what we call candy stick sermons, sermons that are really fun to preach They're fun for everyone to listen to. Everyone laughs. It's a really good time. I've already told you one story and you laughed. That's probably the last time for a little while because tonight we're going to be talking about that. And there are times as a preacher that you have to go through those verses where Jesus all of a sudden gets very serious. So tonight's going to be more of a serious sermon. And there are going to be some points in which if you're in a a rating system, it might not be G, it might be PG. There might be even a point or two that's PG-13. My wife reminded me a couple of times, honey, there might be kids in the audience. Just be careful. And she's actually serious because what we're going to talk about tonight is something that was extremely needed if we were going to be forgiven of sin. And that's all about the cross. So with that in mind, Jesus is going to give us what I call three parts in Luke 18. And we're going to cover them tonight. He's going to talk about the prophets, the path, the plan, and then the promise. And about halfway through, it's going to be a little rough. We're going to have a little turbulence in this airplane a little bit, but here's what I want to tell you. The ending is great. You're going to love the ending tonight. So let's go ahead and let's get started because we've got miles to go before we sleep. So the first part that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 18 is what I call the prophets. And I've got it in green in there. And I said, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, that we're going up to Jerusalem. And then the green part. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. You know, there's a story that's at the end of Luke that I would absolutely love to be a part of. And it's after he's risen from the dead. 
And it's called the road to Emmaus. I don't know if you know that story or are familiar with it, but it's after Jesus has risen from the dead. People are confused about the details. They're not sure what's going on. Two men are walking to Emmaus, and they've got a several-hour journey. And along comes a guy that they're not familiar with, and he says, what are you talking about? And he says, well, ah, duh. Have you not been around? I mean, Jerusalem's been a mess the past week. We don't know what's going on. And this man that they don't recognize as Jesus says this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then here's the part I just would, oh, if I could be a part of. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wow. If I could be a part of just one walk, that would be it. To hear Jesus tell me how all the prophets had told about him and he fulfilled them all. Now that would be awesome. Now the road to Emmaus had about maybe two, maybe three hours. We've got 10 minutes to cover 4,000 years of prophets, okay? So if you're going to be the road to Emmaus and do it in 10 minutes, maybe 12, kind of thing, where are you going to go? So what I want to do here is I want to take this whole stage and I want to make a timeline out of it. I want to take that cross and I want to make it AD 33 and I want to walk all the way back over here to my right, to your left. And if you're on the road to Emmaus and you're talking about the prophets, where would you have started if you were Jesus? Well, you'd start way over here in the baptismal, and you'd be over here in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve have sinned, and they're, and they're not kicked out yet, and God has come and confronted Adam with his sin and Eve with hers. And now he's going to talk to the serpent or to, this, or, or to, um, uh, to Satan. And the verse we're going to go to is Genesis 3.15. And this verse is so important, it actually has its own title. Not many verses in the Old Testament have their own title, but this one does, and it's called the Proto-Evangelium, which means in Latin, first gospel. It is the first verse in all the Bible that tells us that God is going to give a redeemer for Adam and Eve's sin and the sin of mankind. So here's what God has to say to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 4,000 B.C. Now, what, what God is literally saying here to Satan is that someday there's going to be a descendant of this woman who is going to smash your brains in. I mean, I mean that's just what the word literally means. It just, it's like an axe that's just smashing someone's brains in. Oh, and by the way, before that happens, though, you're going to be able to sprain his ankle. But God doesn't give any details about who, what, when, why, or where. He just tells Satan, if I were you, I'd sleep with one eye open because a thump in the night is me coming to get you. And from Genesis 13, uh, 3.15 on, it is a complete march to the cross. So now what I want to do is I want to move forward 3,000 years. I'm going to skip right over the top. Of, of Noah and the flood. It's right about here. Then I want to go right over the top of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's right about here. We don't have time, okay? Okay, children of Israel, Egypt, it's right here. Joshua and everything, we're right here. We don't have time. We've only got 10 minutes, okay? Whew, wish I would have on the road to Emmaus. But I'm going to stop right about here, and I'm going to stop right here, and we're going to take a look at a, at a young man 
who's maybe 19 or 20. His name is David. And he's writing psalms of worship to God. Now, most people think of Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 is a great psalm if you want to talk about grass and sheep and water and nice things. But the thing about it is if you go back one, go to Psalm 23 and then come back one, Psalm 22 is all about being crucified. Okay? Not necessarily the most popular song or psalm that you want to put inside a card to somebody. So it doesn't get used that often, but it needs to be here. And I think that Jesus got here, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. But I want you to listen to the words of this psalm and see if you can't feel yourself right at the foot of the cross that's coming in 1,000 years. Listen to this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many bulls surround me. Many bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open with their mouths wide open against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. 1000 BC. I want to go back one because I want to talk a little bit about this little verse that says, My heart has turned to wax within me, it's melted away. I heard a sermon a number of years ago by a doctor who actually said that that is actually a very accurate mental description of how someone dies when they're crucified. Now, I'm going to go, I won't go too deep, but I just want you to, to mention for a moment that when it comes to being crucified, remember that your arms are out wide and it's stretching your, your chest cavity out. And if you just do this, what do you do? Just do this with me. Air goes in. But if it's going to go out, you've got to have your chest muscles relax and gravity pulls it down and pulls out and to breathe out. Crucifixion actually forces air into your lungs. It's the getting out part that's the difficult part. Because if you're going to get it out, you've got to get the, the release on your lungs. So you've got to push up on the nails, causing extreme pain, just so you can get the breath out. Now, over time, that is going to cause your heart to go into shock. The lining around your heart begins to blister and fills up with water. And over time, your heart is now beating inside of a growing water balloon, causing more pain, harder to breathe, congestive heart failure. And people don't die typically of bleeding to death because the Romans were good at nailing you in places that would not hit arteries. They knew that. You would die of suffocation. And so when the soldier who is standing at the cross pierces Jesus' side after he's voluntarily given up the ghost... Luke actually records it for us. What does he say? What does Luke tell us about the soldier after he pierced Jesus' side? There was a flow of what? Blood and water. And when the water came out, the prophecy of Psalm 22 was fulfilled. Now, here's the amazing part about it. Crucifixion hasn't been invented yet when David wrote this. It's 500 years away. The Persians will actually invent crucifixion, and it's the Romans in AD 50 that create the art form. 
But if you're on the road to Emmaus, you're going to have to go to at least one more place, to the most quoted prophet in all the New Testament that's going to tell about the coming Messiah. And if you're going to do that, you're going to go ahead 300 years, and you're going to go to a, to a, uh, to a prophet called Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is the most probably uh, fundamental chapter to talk about the death of Jesus. It's like you're right there, front row seat, in his, in his uh, trial, his beating, his death. You're right there with a front row seat. But we don't have time to read the whole chapter, so we're going to read the highlight verse from the highlight chapter from the highlight prophet. And it's Isaiah 53, 5. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. 700 B.C. Um, Isaiah gives us an incredible um, detail about the crucifixion. And it tells us that not only will he be pierced, but that he will also be striped. In other words, flogged. Now, the Romans actually had a bit of mercy in them because they did not typically flog a criminal and crucify them. They were typically one or the other. So for Isaiah to come along and tell you that, the, that your Messiah is going to get flogged and crucified meant that something's going to have to happen to cause even the Romans to do something out of the normal to do both to one person because this is not normal which only makes it all the more incredible that Isaiah would tell us how he's going to be re-crucified and the fact that the cat of nine tails, the instrument used to create stripes, is not invented until A.D. 50. Again, another prophet is telling you how your Messiah is going to die without, knowing the, without, without those methods actually being invented yet. So Jesus actually knows all about this, and he's, going to go, he's talking about it with these guys. And so he's going to, in Luke 18, he's going to tell you the path. And when they talk about the path, it's called the pathway I would call it pain. But I didn't want to put that in the notes because I didn't want to kind of get you kind of started that, wow, this is going to be a deep kind of sermon. But Jesus is going to actually tell you how he's going to die. And it, there's, a, there's a system to it. There's an, there will be... Um, an order of service, you might say. And it says right there that they will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And then on the third day, he will rise again. <clears throat> it's right here. I kind of want to take a break, okay? I know it's been heavy. So we're going to take a break here. But it may not be the best break because I've, I wanted to ask this question for you and for me. And that is, have you ever asked yourself, why so horrific? Why so gruesome? I mean, if someone needs to die, why don't we just, why don't we just have a hanging? I mean, let's just get it, get it over with in three to five minutes. If you need blood, then why don't we just do a beheading and kind of get it over with? But what is it about being crucified and flogged that is so needed for the plan? And if you ask that question, there's a couple of things you have to, have to realize. First off, there's only one word that God uses in the Old Testament to describe what sin feels like to him all throughout the Old Testament. And that word is adultery. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been a part of that, and I'm not here to try to conjure up any bad memories because it's an analogy that God uses, not me. I'm not trying to do this. 
But literally every time you sin, it's like you commit adultery to God. And I don't know if you know how many times it takes for even just one act of adultery causes great distress in a marriage. I don't want to ask you how many times you've sinned this week, but you could actually say it's theologically correct. How many times have you committed adultery against God this week? And if you ask that question, then you might understand how mad God gets, how, how, how just deeply personal your sin is, and how much of an offense it is to him. So this death was going to have to be able to be demonstrative, not just of a death, but the wrath of God. And we begin to get a little idea of what that looks like in Leviticus 17.11. In the Old Testament with the sacrificial system, God says this, For the life of a creature is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So so this, whatever death is going to come, is going to have to involve blood. But if you think it's only an Old Testament concept, it's not. Because Hebrews 9.22 tells us this. In fact, the law required nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, <coughs> there is no forgiveness of sin. But if you really want to know about why the, the cross would have to be so horrific, no, uh, no discussion would be complete unless you know a little bit about what we call the blood trench of Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to go all the way back here, and I'm going to stop right about here with Abraham. Dr. R.C. Sproul is the gentleman that gave me the opportunity to know about the blood trench of Genesis 15. And if you go back to Genesis 15, God is in the midst of making a covenant with Abraham, and he's going to make a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to promise you an heir, a son. I'm going to promise you land, and I promise that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham's 90 years old at the time. His wife is 80, and they, haven't done, they don't have children. And he's like, how is this going to happen? And God says, I want you to do one thing, a couple of things for me. I want you to go get five animals. I want you to get a bull, a goat, and a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. I want you to cut, them, cut the big ones in half. Lay, and I want you to lay their pieces opposite one another. I want you to take the, the, the pigeon and the dove, wring their necks, and lay them opposite each other. And let the blood ro- flow in the middle. Now, Abraham knows exactly what God is asking. Because at the time of Abraham in Middle Eastern culture, if you wanted to solemnize a covenant and, and ratify it between a greater and a lesser, a conquering king and a conquered king, you would ratify that with a new covenant with the new rules of engagement. You'd give each party a copy of the new rules. And then you would cut animals in half, lay the halves opposite each other, let the blood run into the middle. And then one at a time, the parties to the contract would hold the contract in their arms, remove their sandals, and then one at a time, they would walk through the blood trench, allowing the blood to come up onto their feet and on the hem of their garment. Literally saying, if I violate this contract, you can do this to me. Pretty solemn agreement there. I'm telling you that if we had that, I mean, we would solve a lot of problems. There wouldn't be many people lying if you did that. But Abraham doesn't want to go through the trench. He made the trench, but there's no way. And in Genesis, it says that he won't do it. 
And he, a deep darkness came over uh, Abraham, it said. And then something miraculous happened. In Genesis fifteen seventeen. it says this. And when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. In other words, what God did back in Genesis 15 is he said he knew that Abraham couldn't do it, so he went through twice by fire and smoke. And if the symbols are at all reminiscent to you, what did God use to lead the children of Israel through the desert for 40 years? Fire by night smoke, and a cloud by day, fire by night. The very two symbols that he used to lead the children of Israel, God went through twice. Once for himself, saying, if I violate my contract, you can do this to me. And if you violate your relationship with me or any of your descendants, you can do this to me. And so from Genesis 15 on, when you get to the cross, R.C. Sproul would actually tell you that God is reenacting the blood trench covenant of Genesis 15. And so when he signs a book, he'll actually sign it, R.C. Sproul, Genesis 15, 17. That's why I put it right up there. That's his life verse. You know, you read that. that, Would that be your life verse? So he says, oftentimes, most people don't read the verse that I sign a book. But sometimes they'll actually pick out the, you know, get their Bible open, think, oh, what's his verse? I'm so excited. You know, what's his life verse? And they, oh, what? This is weird, you know, kind of thing. And, um, and the operators at Ligonier Ministries already know that there are people that call in almost every day wanting to know if there's a typo, if there's a transposition. And they're already to send them an MP3 format of the blood trench. And when they understand Genesis 15, then they understand better about the cross and why it had to be so horrific. Romans 5, 8 to 9 says this, So lest you think that God's just a mad God, God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You know, when I take a look at this, at this, the process of what the cross was going to have to involve, it's compassionate for me to see that Jesus wants to protect his disciples. Thus, inside Luke chapter 18, we find the plan. The plan that Jesus is going to use to help his disciples get through this horrific time, this time of unknown. And so he comes up with the plan. And here it is. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. But, you know, this is not the first time that Jesus has hidden the meaning from them about the cross. If you go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 44, it says, Jesus is telling his disciples, about a year and a half earlier, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, but they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. You know, I can just see the disciples going, why? What's he talking about? Being betrayed? Who's, what? Peter, you ask Jesus, what is he talking about? And Peter's like, I put my foot in my mouth enough. I'm not going to talk to him about that. What about John? No, I'm not going to talk to him about that. And they have no clue what he meant. Here's what I get out of this little verse that's applicable to me. Sometimes not knowing the plan is the plan. How many times does God take you through a time of trial, great distress, and doesn't tell you the why, doesn't tell you the, the how, doesn't tell you the understanding of it all, 
It's just a mess. And why would he do that? Because it's his plan, not mine. And he knows that sometimes in order to accomplish his plan, he's got to keep you in the dark long enough for you to let him do the plan. So I think there's a couple of reasons why Jesus kept them in the dark. Number one is, he did not want his disciples to interfere with the plan. Now, if you remember this, it was the night before Jesus died. Peter's actually the one that, caught, that, made, that, that did the Scrabble game. Uh, he, he figured it all out. He's like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, you, you really are talking about dying. And it says that Peter took Jesus aside privately and started to rebuke him for wanting to die. I mean, Peter's just letting him have it. On the, but here what we have is Jesus turns the table on Peter and says this. Oh, sorry, I went back. He had the sternest words for any disciple in the Gospels. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Woo, that's a, that's a sit down and shut up, come to Jesus kind of moment if you think, if you think about it. I'm sure the disciples were saying, man, Peter, what did you just say to Jesus? He's saying, shut up, shut up. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Kind of thing, you know, ah, oh, he's always getting his foot in his mouth. Ah, you know, and Jesus has got, and he's forever known as the guy that's been told, get behind me, Satan. I've got a question for you, though. How many times do you take God aside privately and rebuke him for the plan that he has for you? Just because you don't like it. You don't understand it. It doesn't feel good doesn't make any sense. How often does Jesus have to tell you and me? This is my, if you want to know what my greatest downfall, I tell, I, I, I get mad at God. That's, I tell him off. I mean, that's kind of my big downfall. Don't do it. My wife will tell you there's been times, Woo, I'm going to stand away. Woo, stand away. Kind of like, if God strikes you with lightning, it would be justified. Woo, kind of thing. Okay? There are times that you need to just roll with it and let God be God And don't rebuke him for the plan of your own life. Number two, to suffer alone was a major component of the plan. Jesus actually tells his disciples what's going to happen that very night, the night before the cross. He says, then Jesus said to them, this very night you all will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Zechariah 13 verse 7. You know, there was, it's enough to be mocked, flogged and crucified. But the cross was not going to be a team event. It's one thing to suffer with people that you love and know and trust. But when you have to do it alone, God knows it only accentuates the pain, the aloneness of it all. Jesus is going to be alone, taking on the wrath of God for you and for me. And it's only going to accentuate the pain. But there is a third And the best time to understand the plan would be later. There are times in your life and mine that God will let you know, but it's going to be later. Because between now and the understanding, we've got a fourth, we've got one more component to Luke chapter 18, and that's the promise. Because Friday's horrible, but Sunday's coming. I don't know why I get emotional about this. I've been working all week at not getting there. But I told you it would be a heavy sermon. This is not a candy stick one. And it says, And he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And on the third day, 
he will rise again. We've got a promise. And so if you're on the road to Emmaus, remember, Jesus is talking about the fact that the prophets told you about his death, but they also talked about his resurrection. So if you're going to go back to that road to Emmaus, where are you going to go? You're going to go right back here to the Psalms, and you're going to go back to Psalm chapter 16. Read it sometime. It's an amazing chapter because it talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And it says this, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Amazing verse. The problem is, is that in, in Psalm chapter 16, there's two prominent pronouns that are used throughout the psalm. You and me. From context, you can get that the you stands typically for God. And you assume that the me stands for David, the writer of the psalm. But it gets confused in the middle of it. it did you see it? Because whoever is me all of a sudden starts to give himself a name of the Holy One. Now, that's kind of weird. It's also capitalized in the Hebrew, which confers deity. And we know that David was not deity. And then something, Holy One, decay, those are two words that typically don't go together. I mean, is David decaying or is his Holy One decaying? That doesn't make any sense. And then if you go to the next verse after that, it's, I will experience joy at your right hand. Now, that's a place that's only reserved for Messiah. But David's writing it. Is that David? Or is that Messiah? And the you and the me for 1,000 years caused more questions and answers with Jewish rabbis and scholars for 1,000 years. And you know what? God was totally okay with it. Don't be shocked or surprised if God brings some little bit of chaos into your life and he's totally okay with it because there would be a time when he will solve the riddles. He will give the answers. And the time is coming in Luke chapter 24 and he's now appearing back to his disciples. He's risen from the dead and he says this, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets and the Psalms. I have a feeling he went to Psalm 16 and he said this. The you is God the Father and me is me. I'm the only one that was talked about in Psalm chapter 16. And if you read it as God the Father and God the Son without David in it, it all of a sudden, wow, it all makes sense. It all comes alive. And I have a feeling there were some really big aha moments with Jesus as he's now giving them the road to Emmaus and talking about how that everything was fulfilled. And then they saw, oh, you did have a plan. How many times have you gone through a period of life that's chaotic, that's, that's, that's just messy, thinking God wasn't there, only to at the end, after it's over, you look back and say, oh, he was there all the time. I just... I just didn't feel like it. And then there was a, I have a feeling that he went back to Isaiah and he went back and told them, and he says, and then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures and he told them this, that Christ would suffer, rise from the dead on the third day 
and the repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. I'm sure that he went back to the prophet Isaiah because the book of Isaiah opens with this amazing verse. Isaiah 118, it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. But the prophet isn't telling you how. But now they do. And for 700 years, God didn't tell you how. And he was totally okay with that. But now we get to preach the repentance of sins, which is why I think John, in his book, 1 John 1, 9, says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells us it's all about the cross. But it's a big if statement here. It's if you confess. Jesus died for sins, but it is not uniformly applied just because you're an American. It is not applied to your account just because you feel like you're a good person or you go to church or, you're an, or you do nice things for people. There's only one way to have your sins forgiven. You have to ask. So I just ask, have you asked? Have you ever just said, you know what? Huh. I don't know. I don't know if I've asked or not. I mean, I, I kind of thought that if I came to Gateway, kind of was a nice person, did some good things. That, no, 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 no. This is way, way too serious for that. It's if you ask. Have you asked? If you have asked, when was the last time that you told God thank you for dying on the cross? Because that cross right there at Gateway glistens to me every single weekend and is missing one important artifact, a lot of blood that would have been shed for yours, sin, and mine. Have you thanked him lately? Let's all bow our heads right now and just take a moment. Take a moment. Maybe you need to ask God for the very first time to forgive you of your sin. Maybe that's the, the reason you're here tonight. And so you need to actually just, you just, Mike, can you help me? I guess I've never said that before. So maybe just in the quietness of your heart, if you need to ask God to forgive, it's available. Just say this. Dear God, I am so sorry for the things I've done against you and against those I love. And I ask that you would just forgive me because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And that I can be forgiven of all my sin because I ask. Maybe you're in your, in your heart, you haven't thanked God lately. You haven't really thought about the price God paid for your sin. And you want to say thank you. Take a moment right now and just say thank you to God that he saved you from your sin.